we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, and we're going to talk today about H-1B visas. And there's a specific reason for it. The Depending on when you tune into the podcast, the lottery to give out H-1B visas, where companies enter the lottery and try to get them, either is still going on or will have ended recently. And that's kind of a nutty way of giving out these supposedly high-skilled visas. And it's always struck me as odd. And in fact, it seems to have struck the Trump administration as odd. And they, through regulation, came up with a new way of giving them out, trying to give it to the most skilled or at least highest paid people first to minimize the harm that this visa does. I mean, in my opinion, personally, we should just get rid of the thing. But That's something Congress would have to do. But the statute doesn't say how you have to give out the visas if there's more demand than there is supply. And so for whatever reason, it's always been lottery. The Trump administration, through regulation, tried to fix that. And it was stymied. And so we're back to the old dumb way of doing it. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about this issue and have one of our people who used to be director of policy at USCIS within Homeland Security, which is the part of the agency, the policy shop at any agency is the one that does all of the regulation. And since Congress doesn't make laws anymore, basically this is where our laws come from nowadays, is the policy shop within various agencies. Rob Law, one of our analysts here at the center, was the director of policy at USCIS, and so was responsible for writing regulations and this regulation in particular. And so I thought it'd be a great chance to talk about this issue and see what the story is, sort of bring people up to date with H-1B. So Rob, thanks for joining us. And what did the Trump administration try to do to change the way we give out H-1B visas and what was the thinking there? Sure. Thanks, Mark. And uh, glad to be here to talk about this issue. As you noted, right now we're in the H-1B cap season, if you will. And so just by way of background, from March 1st to March 18th is the time period that petitioners can register electronically their intent to to seek out an H-1B. And we can go through that process in a little bit. But really the H-1B program, it's a nominally temporary guest worker program, although H-1Bs have been given what's called dual intent, which means you can intend to return home while simultaneously intending to want to stay in the United States permanently. So it's kind of a misnomer to call it a temporary guest worker program. Immigration courtesy of George Orwell. Exactly. And so the H-1B program is for specialty occupations, which typically are supposed to require 
some sort of degree as a prerequisite for the field that you are doing, the job that you're doing. The thing is with H-1Bs, the rhetoric about what the H-1B program is, who the H-1B workers are, does not align with the reality of who's actually receiving them. Oftentimes you'll hear H-1Bs, they're the best and the brightest, or they're high-skilled workers. This is high-skilled immigration. But actually, the data shows that almost 90% of the H-1Bs are actually at the two lowest levels of prevailing wage. and Two out of four. Two so out it's of the four. basically below average is kind of way maybe to think about it. That's right. And so there's a statutory cap of 65000 every fiscal year, and then there's an additional 20000 who have a U.S. advanced degree. So we'll say 85000 total. Of course, there is more demand than there is the supply. And so the thinking that we had in the Trump administration is, it's highly inefficient to use just a lottery, pure luck, randomization to allocate this limited resource in the form of a cap subject H-1B. So a better way of doing it would be to prioritize the H-1Bs at the highest prevailing wage level, which is level four. And then once all of the level fours have been selected, you move down to level threes. And then if there are still spots available, you would move down to level two. And it would only be at the time that there were more registrations within a particular wage level that you would just run a singular lottery at that level. So it would ensure that the highest sought out foreign workers would get an H-1B, assuming they were otherwise eligible for it, and that a lower skilled H-1B worker would never be competing or taking the spot of someone who was higher skilled. So what was the principle involved there? The, the higher paid people are presumably the higher skilled people and therefore ones that are able to contribute more, less likely to compete with entry-level American workers. Is that kind of the thinking? Exactly. So the higher the skill level and the salary that is commensurate with that, you're more likely to actually have a, a unique skill set where you're not supplanting a U.S. worker, you're possibly supplementing the workforce, as opposed to when you have too many at the lowest wage levels, you're, you're really shutting out the opportunities for college graduates or others who are just really American workers who are early in their field. So go, trying to just have the truly best of this pool utilize the, those that are limited. Essentially, not make it what it is now, which is just a cheap labor program, kind of a white collar Bracero program, if you will. Well, exactly. And again, like I said at the beginning, you know, this program is often defined as the best and the brightest. And yet it's really those that are basically entry level, just data entry folks, unexceptional, not through any fault of their own. That's just what their skill set is. And that's just who who is capturing them because there are more people at the lower rungs. And that's just standard in pretty much any field. The more experienced, the higher up you are, there's fewer people as you climb to the top. So to reemphasize, I mean, from what you said, 90% of people who get this are below average in the skill range that the Labor Department sets out in these fields, right? That's correct. Yeah. Unbelievable. How did you guys go about trying to change the way this selection thing works? Sure. So there was a two-step regulatory process over the four years of the Trump administration. The first was to create the electronic registration system. So before the Trump administration, USCIS has 
think some of our listeners know, is still on an antiquated paper-based system. And so what that used to entail was that an entire H-1B petition would have to be filled out, you know, a giant multi-inch thick file paper of forms. paper forms yeah. and, and the work that goes into it. And the payment to the lawyers to fill it to, out. Exactly. And you would then mail that in to USCIS. And on April 1st, which is the date that USCIS can start receiving H-1B petitions for the next fiscal year, which starts October 1st, you would literally have truck after truck after truck lined up that were just filled with pallets of these petitions, full petitions. And so then they would just land in a warehouse and essentially you're just kind of picking folders out of this giant mess of, you know, these submissions and those that weren't selected, then you had to go mail it back. So, <laughs> so that was highly inefficient. It's inefficient for the agency to have to deal with all the paperwork and return it. And it's financially inefficient for any employer who has to shell out the money to the immigration attorney to fill out the paperwork for the, you know, probably about less than a third or maybe even lower percent likelihood of you actually being selected. So that was a bad process. And so the first step was create an electronic system where you register your desire and you only have to put in a little bit of information in a nominal $10 fee just to kind of prevent your bots from overwhelming the system. And really that regulation was viewed as being really pro smaller employers, you know, if I'm a small business and I there's about two or three H1Bs that I'm looking for, I don't necessarily have the ability to pay my immigration attorney for all three on the and most likely I'm only going to get one of the three based off of the way the lottery works. Right. But the big guys, that's just cost of doing business, so they can afford to, and what many people believe is they seek out more than they actually really want, running the numbers that, hey, if I really only need 20, if I put in 50 petitions, I'm probably going to get pretty close to 20, and then the ones that aren't selected you know, get kicked back. And that's the thing I wanted to bring up, is that the lottery drives huge extra numbers of petitions precisely to try to game the system. Exactly. And with that, it then creates, I think, this false notion that there's even more demand and therefore we have to raise the cap because look at how many people are filing, but it's really kind of a gamesmanship to get what it is that you're looking for. So again, step one, you create an electronic registration system and then the lottery was run on just the preliminary information and then that served as an invitation to submit your H-1B petition. The whole thing. The whole thing. The that, whole thing. Yeah. And so only from there would you look at you know, are you eligible or not? And so that was a great cost saver both to the agency, USCIS not having to receive all this paperwork from petitions that they'll never look at. And from an employer's perspective, you're only going to the trouble of filling out the whole petition if you think you're going to get a spot. If you just did that without changing the lottery, in a sense, maybe that would invite even more applications because it's a lot easier to apply. You see what I mean? In other words, you might end up with way more because if it's 10 bucks and you are only paying, you know, essentially the equivalent of, say, $50 for the work to fill out just a quick mini application, then in a sense, that might actually drive more applications if there wasn't the next part of the change, right? Right. And I know David North has pointed that out in posts in, in the past. And, right. and I, I think that's a very astute and valid observation. And so also just with that other rule is 
we also switched the order at which the lotteries were run. So again, we're still in a, in a lottery mindset, but again, historically, the advanced degree holder cap was filled first. So the first 20,000 who had a U.S. advanced degree filled those, and then whatever was the extra unselected got dumped into the bigger general pool for competing for the 65,000 general cap. Basically, the master's degree people got first and then the yeah. bachelor's degree people second. Exactly, kind of. yeah. yeah. And so what was done in this rule was that the general cap was run first. So that meant everybody was being considered for the 65,000 and then the remaining unselected advanced degree holders were then competing against each other for the remaining 20,000. I see. The goal being get more U.S. advanced degree holders, ideally a higher skilled population. And I believe the first year that this system was in place, the amount of U.S. advanced degree holders that were selected increased about 15% compared okay. to historical. So we're, we're moving in the right direction, making it slightly more merit-based, but again- But it's still a lottery. It's still a lottery, and it's still overwhelmingly being allocated to the two lowest- wage earners. So then in in 2020, what we tried to do is say, well, if we can already establish the registration as a pre-step to filing your H-1B, we can also determine how we select the registrations, those invitations, if you will, to file. Because the new initial mini application had the salary in it too, right? Right. So that's, then you can screen. Exactly. And so with the second rule that we did in 2020 was to say, we are going to prioritize the highest wage levels first and work our way down. And only if you get to a level where there are more entries than there are spots remaining, would you run a lottery at that level. So again, if you're level four, unless somehow we're getting 85,000 submissions for that, you, you have a 100% chance of getting an H-1B. If you've level four meaning the, the highest, highest level yeah. of skill. So okay. if, you, if you've identified the highest possible foreign worker under the rule that we put out in 2020, you had 100% likelihood of getting it. So people wouldn't necessarily then have to apply for 15 people in order to get, you know, whatever, three applications. They just submit an application for what they actually needed. Exactly. So you could be some small tech operation. You just need one person. If it's level four, highest level, you're going to get that person as opposed to in fiscal years 2019 and 2020, only about 4% of the regular cap went to level four. Wow. And then the advanced degree, still only 2.31% went to level four holders. So obviously there's fewer people at that level, but people were getting left out of consideration by just the randomness of the lottery. Right. And, and so that was the rule that we did we did the comment period we worked very quickly at the end of the fall of 2020 you know, after the election to get this rule finalized and we had the final rule published in early January of 2021 before the inauguration right and because this is what's called an economically significant rule which is just you know regulatory mumbo jumbo language there's a delayed effective date which means the regulation is on the books but it doesn't actually come into play for a period of time and for economically significant rules at 60 days. Okay. And of course, 60 days was a time after the inauguration, but the Biden administration or the Biden campaign, I should say, their, their website said that they favor a merit-based immigration system. And 
frankly, this was one of the few regulations that we weren't really getting criticized from Democrats. The Biden campaign didn't say anything about it. Really, the only people upset about this were kind of your immigration attorneys because it was bad for business. Right. Um, Because they're not able to just constantly fill out petitions that were never going to even be looked at and, and get those attorneys' fees. And the body shops would have been against it too, right? I mean, body shops meaning the outsourcing or uh, how do they call it, like temp companies almost that supply cheap tech labor to the big companies. You're exactly right. So again, most of the Trump administration, you had the big tech companies, the Apples, the Microsofts, Googles, highly critical of various aspects of Trump administration policy. But when it came to this, this actually really worked in their favor because they just tended to hire the more higher skilled, higher prevailing wage level H-1B. So again, like you mentioned, the, the Indian outsourcing firms, the ones that are just kind of coming in to do a temp job and then going to another employer doing another temp job, those are the ones that typically are your level ones, your level two, that used to eat up all of the numbers. Now it's not looking too good for their business file. So that, that was a group that was not supportive of it. So if there wasn't strong opposition, what happened? So what happened is the Biden administration came in and immediately any rule that wasn't effective, they delayed the effective date. They basically punted it down the road a little bit. And that's standard for most administrations that come in to let's see what's going on here and what do we want to do. And so then with this particular, what I'll call the H-1B selection rule, the Biden administration delayed it a second time to the end of calendar year 2021. And the reason that they articulated in the delay was that they needed more time to have USCIS ready to operationalize it, which means update their systems to account for doing this sort of rank and selection process. And frankly, I thought that there was some merit to that because I I know there was some consternation from the operators at the service centers of, oh, how can we do this? But So their initial delay was not based on the substance of what the rule said, just the practicality of actually being able to implement it. Exactly. And again, you have to remember that Biden is sworn in late January and the cap season starts in in March. So that's a very short period of time. This is a brand new rule. So again, at the time, I thought, hey, this this rule actually may come to life. We're just going to delay it one more fiscal year, Mm -hmm. if you will. And then there was litigation challenging the rule brought to you by the Chamber of Commerce, which was interesting because I actually think it would have benefited some of their members, but maybe not the most vocal ones. And throughout the summer of 2021, the Biden administration is defending this rule. They're defending- In court. In court. They're defending Acting Secretary Chad Wolf's authority to serve as the Acting Secretary and sign off on documents. They're doing all those things. They're going to bat for this rule, legitimizing it. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, just a few months ago, they just very quietly told the court, we'll no longer defend this rule. And by virtue of that, this surrender, if you will, that allowed the court to just say, now the rule is dead. Even though it was a final rule, we went through notice and comment, we published it, you know, there was an effective date. They just nullified the rule before it would have gone into effect on December 31st. By not defending it in court. By not defending it in and court. And so that really highlights a bigger problem. I think you've written about this elsewhere, that this is 
basically it's a form of lawfare, as they say. In other words, doing work through the courts where you get a friendly, you get an ally to sue you, and then you refuse to defend yourself, and the ally gets what they want, which is what you want. You just can't do it as quickly and easily as you would like. Exactly. You're you're winning by losing in in the courts, essentially. And this is a a growing trend in, in the Biden administration. It's not something I had ever seen before in the regulatory space. I've this sort of friendly litigation is not a new phenomenon, but specific to regulations, it is. I mean, and the whole point of the regulatory process and the requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act is that it's really difficult, time consuming and challenging to implement a regulation. In exchange for that, it's supposed to also be that much more challenging for a subsequent administration to undo it, to undo it or, or tweak it in some fashion, because they have to go through all the same steps that you did to undo it, as opposed to something that's just a simple policy. Oh, here's my memo. Well, that can just be subbed out on day one. Right. It has less teeth and it's easier. It's kind of more like a ping pong, just back and forth, policy memo, policy memo. But regulations are supposed to really have some teeth and it'd be a very lengthy process to change regulations because in theory, regulations are supposed to have a greater impact on the public than some of your policy documents. So in a sense, to sort of pull out a little bit, the point of the law, the Administrative Procedure Act, that gives you all of these hoops, that lays out the steps to make a regulation, in a sense, kind of the point of it is that since Congress isn't making law and the regulatory agencies are making law, to make it almost like a legislative process. In other words, you've got these hoops to jump through and therefore, and to undo it, it's harder. So essentially what you're saying here is that Biden administration has effectively found a way to neuter the Administrative Procedure Act. Exactly. And they've been able to nullify multiple regulations. The H-1B1, like I said, had the delayed effective date, so it wasn't officially on the books, but it should have gone on the books because the Trump administration, we followed all of the requirements. Right. We meaningfully responded to all the comments. We did our job. And if they didn't like the regulation, they had a period of time when they delayed the effective date to write a rescission rule, put that out for comment, receive comments, and still go forward with it. They would have had the time to do that, but instead, it seems like they're just creating this new mechanism that will almost discourage any subsequent administration from ever going to the trouble of completing regulations because why are you going to work this hard when you can just go find a friend to undo somebody else's regulation by challenging it in court? I think the glaring example is, of course, public charge, which was actually in effect. So it was on the books. It was being applied by USCIS in the adjudicative process. And again, you had this is public charge public where charge. you have to demonstrate that you're not likely to become a welfare case, basically, in order it, to get a green card. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so that was so that was on the books. That was completed. That it wasn't was com- a last minute thing that you guys no. had done. No, that one was on the books in effect. And similarly, and I would say even more outrageously because it was on the books. Again, the Biden administration allowed a friendly plaintiff to challenge the regulation, even though it's in the law. and. Everything was complied under the Administrative Procedure Act and the Biden administration, which dislikes it from a policy standpoint. And that's that's fine that they don't like the interpretation that the Trump administration had. But right. 
they said, we're not going to defend this lawsuit. And that empowered a judge to say the regulation has been struck. And then you just revert to what the previous policy was. So, I mean, this is a bigger question even than just immigration, but immigration specifically because there was so much litigation around it. Is there some way of dealing with this issue? In other words, of essentially making the Administrative Procedure Act actually mean something rather than just a tool for negating regulations, an administration that you don't like put into effect? I think there's a couple of mechanisms that can be sort of safeguards, if you will, for the Administrative Procedure Act. The first one being allowing someone else to step in and defend the lawsuit Uh if you no longer do. For example, again, I know we're focusing on H-1B, but using the public charge regulation as an example, the state of Arizona, their attorney general, their governor tried to intervene, if you will, which means step in place of the to federal To become government, the defendant. To become the defendant, exactly. Right. And so we don't need to focus on right. that, but that is a mechanism. If now the administration, the federal government, and the plaintiff are aligned philosophically, we do not have adversaries. And if there is an adversary, which is what is supposed to be required in litigation, allow someone else that has standing a state, an attorney general, to step in and do that. That could help that process. That doesn't prevent a judge from saying, you know, this rule is unlawful, it violated the APA or any other thing. But it would keep a lawsuit going. It would keep it going. Yeah. And then the second mechanism would just be judges need to be a little bit more critical in who they allow to have legal standing, which is you can't just say, I don't like this. I'm going to, you have to show some sort of harm. You have to show a, a nexus. And oftentimes in the Trump administration policies, standing was found from you know advocacy groups in California or some other state for a policy that really didn't impact that entity, but they were suing on behalf of groups. I mean, you even had when in the asylum context, a regulation was put in place that said, if you pass through another country to come to the United States, right. you're barred. So these are, we're talking about people who aren't even at the U.S. border. They're on the way up. Right. And an advocacy group was able to sue and get an injunction for a population that wasn't even here. So they're not even subject to our laws. So they got standing. The advocacy group got they standing. Got, they got standing on behalf of a population that oh. even wasn't subject to the jurisdiction of our laws at that particular Unbelievable. moment. And so that's really what the problem is in the courts. But those are mechanisms that could at least give some integrity back to the administrative procedure. I mean, the, the first thing you mentioned about letting someone else intervene and basically take the place of the federal government as a defendant, is that something that, to some degree, that's up to judges, right? Can that, the ability to do that, be made easier through statutory changes? I'm just trying to think of what kind of things, you know, a future Congress could do to fix this. Oh, I certainly think so. Again, it's up to the judge, and it may vary based off of what is, what's the regulation. or No, or no, what thing, I mean is, uh, can there be changes to the Administrative Procedure Act that would say, if the administration, whatever it is, refuses to defend itself, then someone else will have standing to defend it? I have no idea what that would look like. Oh, yes, yeah. And there are legislative proposals, not just limited to the Administrative Procedure Act, where you can give basically citizen standing. Right. And so that would be a mechanism, especially now that it seems like the Administrative Procedure Act is being circumvented through this friendly lawfare to clarify that if something is being challenged on APA grounds, that a relevant state attorney general does have standing or a citizen that you need to have adverse parties for the litigation to be meaningful. So my point is that's potentially a small but potentially important agenda item for a future Congress something that they could pass 
that seems relatively small but could actually have significant effects in immigration and elsewhere. Absolutely, especially since Congress doesn't want to actually legislate anymore. Right. And, and when they do, it's so vague that they are basically handing over authority to the executive branch to fill in the gaps. What they call an enabling act, which is a, a bad thing, frankly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, more specific legislation takes out that ambiguity and it really makes regulations less necessary because Congress has already spoken. It's only when there's so much gray area that it turns to the executive branch to do that. But So what's the story to get back to H-1B? They're just going back to the old way, right? In the current lottery that they're running? That's right. So again, what we have is the electronic registration system, which you go online, pay your $10, you put a little bit of information between March 1st and March 18th at some- So it's over by now then? Yes. But the public won't know probably until April, the outcome of that. So the registration period was March 1 to March 18. And at some point between the 18th and March 31st, the lotteries will be run Okay, and people will be notified. So honestly, you're most likely to find out if someone was selected by, uh, you know, checking the Twitter feed of your favorite, uh, you know, business immigration attorney, because they'll either be excited or upset about not being selected. Right. And then eventually, I would expect that USCIS would put out a press release that says the lottery has been run, all spots have been invited to be adjudicated. Right. To submit the full to application. To submit them, right. right. And, and so to avoid any confusion, just because you were selected in the registration lottery does not guarantee you an H-1B, you still have to prove- Do they oversubscribe because they figure some people won't qualify or won't apply? Yeah, there's a mathematical formula based off of historical data, so- sort of roughing it, you know, for 65,000 general cap, maybe about 78,000 might be selected, knowing that, you know, there may be some duplicates, somebody may no longer want it for some reason, fraud, ineligibility, abandonment, any any of those things. But yeah, at the end of the day, there won't be more than 65,000. They're pretty good at figuring out what to do with those numbers. And then if there is a shortfall, and by shortfall, I mean, they don't completely max out the cap. Mm Mm-hmm. The current view by USCIS is that they are obligated to get as close to it as possible. I think that there is an argument to be made that that is not how the statute is written. But so what that does mean is that if there's a shortfall, say they fill 60,000 spots, they'll run another lottery on on everybody else. So you'll just be told not selected at this time or something like that. You could still have another bite at the apple to get one if the original selection pool doesn't max out the right. 65000 and 20000 So not to get too much in the weeds on this Mickey Mouse lottery system, but what was the basis of the legal challenge? In other words, is there something in the statute? There must be some interpretation of the statute, maybe, that says lotteries are a problem, or was it just a question of acting Secretary Wolf, you know, his, his appointment not being legitimate? So it wasn't challenging the lottery itself. It was the ordering it. Right. Basically, the way the statute is written, and it's poor legislative language that doesn't align with how immigration petitions are are handled, but it basically is the equivalent of saying that H-1Bs should be allocated in the manner that they are received. So basically like a first in, first out type of thing. Okay. But that's not how it works. Some, you know, if you file before me, if your petition is more complicated than mine, I see. There's no way that the agency can just hold up my approval 
while they're trying to figure out whether or not you are eligible for the immigration benefit that you right. that you sought. And so basically the whole concept of the lottery was that it is administrative convenience because everybody's filing at the same time. So you can't distinguish right. who, who, got, who, there who first. got there first. Right. You know, did DHL show up earlier than UPS versus FedEx versus right. whatever? And so the lottery was created out of administrative convenience. Say it's an impossibility to figure out who came first. And by the way, the language is poorly drafted anyway. So we're going to do a lottery. It's just easier that way. So there's nothing in the statute that would say you couldn't do the most skilled, highest salary first approach that you guys put in place. From the concept of the registration period being an earlier step than filing. Mm -hmm. And so what we looked at was the statute talks about filing a petition, right. but registration is not a filing. Oh, okay. Oh, that's and, and Yeah. So we created this earlier step in the process and that was actually never challenged. Nobody challenged that. Okay. And so then the thinking was, well, if we've established that there is this earlier step in the process, we have great flexibility as to how we handle that process. Right. And that's where this idea of choosing the highest prevailing wage levels, most skilled first and working your way down would allow you to still be fine with the statute, which says then then you file the, the petition. So I don't want to lose people in detail, but the fact that the legal challenge was based on the acting secretary's authority to be acting, to basically he had authority or did not have authority to sign the piece of paper. If that had failed, would the next grounds of complaint have been the substance of the rule and complaining about it? that you're not allowed to do it that way. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So the legal challenge was twofold. Of course, you know, you, you throw every challenge. Right. See uh, what uh, sticks. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the easiest one for these courts to fall upon was to say that Chad Wolf didn't have the authority to do that because right. he wasn't Senate confirmed for the secretary's position. Right. So that's where the case settled on. If he had been found to have that authority, which I think he did have that authority, then it would have gone to what we talked about. Oh, can you do this at the registration stage? Yeah. And as I explained to you, I think that that would have been upheld on the merits because the creation of the registration period happened several years earlier and was never challenged. I see. And so if it was acceptable and legal to run it that way while still retaining a lottery, you've created an earlier stage in the process before filing. The statute doesn't talk about how to handle that aspect of it. Therefore, the agency has right. great leverage to interpret that reasonably, and it's very reasonable to say that we want to go highest merit, highest wage right. level, highest skilled first, and work our way down. The only thing that I'd say about that is that, because you had said that the big companies, the Apples and what have you, weren't really making a stink about it. And I say this because one of the gurus of the H-1B issue, Norm Matloff, makes this point all the time, a professor at UC Davis, is that you're right that the big companies, the big, you know, marquee companies whose names everybody's heard of, do hire H-1Bs directly. And those are generally higher skilled people. There's not a huge number of them. But they also make extensive use of these so-called body shops. For instance, when Disney fired all of its IT staff and replaced them and forced the Americans to train their replacements, the replacements were not working for Disney. They were working for a third-party company that provided personnel. And so the distinction between, as Norm puts it, the 
Intels, meaning the big marquee names, and the Infosys, which is one of the big body shops, that that distinction is real, but it's not as big as you think, because even the big companies have an interest in the cheap labor from H-1Bs because they hire these Infosys and Tata and the other companies. Yeah, and I completely agree with that. I'm very familiar with the arguments that Professor Matloff puts forward. And the big companies definitely, they do sort of dabble in the H-1B space, both directly and through these vendors, if you will. And Disney is one of the prime examples of that. And so again, you know, this was just one approach that the Trump administration took to sort of upskill H-1Bs. The Department of Labor was concurrently working on a regulation to increase the wage levels, these prevailing wage levels. Right. And I think that's a lot of what Professor Matloff talks about is, yeah, the the outsourcing guys, they get to pay substandard wages compared to somebody at that level. But your intels are also paying substandard wages compared to your your more advanced degree, talented right. Am- right. Americans. It's It's still a discount because the way the prevailing wage has been applied is that the four levels account to the 17th, 34th, median, and 67th percentile of wages in the area, in the field for the job. So again, even the supposed highest skilled, most talented, you don't need to pay them more than the 67th or two-thirds of the wage there. So again, this is where the rhetoric of H-1Bs if they're the best and the brightest, why are they working at intern or discounted rates, right? They're not right. getting paid the premiums that you would expect. And that allowing this sub-market rate to the H-1B population all legally is why the H-1B program is so attractive and which is why the Department of Labor, which has jurisdiction over the wage levels, was also trying to work on a rule that increased the calculation for the prevailing wage to reduce the amount of, of the discount. Right. So the point is, in a future administration, DHS and labor could do a lot to make the H-1B program less harmful. But ultimately, Congress does need to fix the statute as well, right? Exactly. And I think one of the biggest misnomers on H-1Bs is that the employer has to show that they couldn't find a qualified American. There actually is no requirement in the law that they sought out Americans in good faith and now have to rely on H-1Bs as a last resort. Other visa categories do have that requirement, and it's kind of bogus anyway, but it doesn't even exist in a bogus form in H-1B. Correct, yeah. It's glossed over in other contexts, but in H-1B, there's absolutely no recruitment requirement whatsoever. Uh, A lot of people believe that there is such a thing, which is why they say, oh, we have a STEM shortage in America and all this. Like, look, they need all these H-1Bs. Well, they don't have to go look out for Americans, and you know, it's more than a third of American graduates with STEM degrees are doing non-STEM work. And I think H-1B program is a driver that forces them out or precludes them from ever getting into it. Right. So anyway, I'm going to let you go now. But what this amounts to is that the Trump administration made a real effort at improving the H-1B program or making it less bad and ultimately was stymied in doing so. So this is going to have to be on the agenda for a new administration and a new Congress to try to fix this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, I think, an example of something where just the Biden administration is spiteful of anything that the Trump administration did because of it being the Trump administration. As, As I said, the Biden campaign basically articulated the principles behind this regulation, and yet they allowed it to die simply because they didn't come up with it. Right, right. Unbelievable. Well, anyway, I thank you, Rob Law. 
from the center talking about the H-1B program, which the initial steps for the selection of which is going on now. And when there's something else going on in this regulatory space, Rob, we'll have you back. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. And finally, I wanted to talk a minute about Title 42. That was in the news a lot last week, and it's going to continue to be in the news until May. Title 42 is a shorthand term for this public health measure because of the pandemic that allows the Border Patrol to just bounce illegal immigrants at the border out of the country without any kind of hearing or any of that stuff. It was put into effect a couple of years ago when all of this COVID business was starting, you know, shut down school closures, mask mandates, all that stuff. It was part of that and may have made sense back then, but it's outlived its purpose, which is specifically related to public health. And the president's supporters, as anti-borders supporters, have been complaining because this administration undid most of the other things related to immigration that the Trump administration did, but kept this Title 42 expulsion order in place, at least partly. They narrowed its application as a kind of crutch, as a substitute for actually enforcing the immigration laws. Well, at some point, with the ebbing of the pandemic, they're going to have to get rid of it. And they announced last week that May 23rd is when they would lift this Title 42 order, which means that illegal immigrants, especially single adults who are only ones left to whom it is being applied, will now be able to utter the magic words of asylum that they're smugglers and American immigration activists, either working together or separately, have coached them on. And they will also enter the choked up asylum pipeline and end up just being let go into the United States. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who have been waiting in Mexico for the end of this Title 42 measure and will be storming the border. DHS is planning or trying to plan for as much as 18,000 illegal alien arrests a day at the border. Right now, they're dealing with something like 7,000 a day, which is already a crisis level. It's been going up earlier this year. It was more like running at 5,000. And Obama's own DHS director, Jay Johnson, said that anything over 1,000 a day overwhelms the system. And so our system at the border is already overwhelmed, and they're talking about as much as doubling or more the number of people coming over. And a lot of politicians, even a lot of Democrats, especially those along the border, have been complaining about this and telling the administration, keep it in place until you have a plan. You don't have a plan of how to deal with this. Well, the plan to actually keep people out would involve enforcing immigration laws, and they just can't bring themselves to do that. But I think they actually do have a plan because another rule change, which hasn't gotten as much attention, will go into effect around the same time that this Title 42 order is lifted. And what that is is relates to asylum, which is the excuse or the stratagem that most illegal immigrants now at the border use. Again, like I said, they've been coached to do so by American immigration activists and smugglers. 
And so what this new rule would do, assuming it goes into effect, I assume there's going to be a lawsuit, would make it dramatically easier, quicker to give people asylum. They would be able to get asylum on the border. It wouldn't be literally the minute they step across, but it would be a extremely accelerated and much looser standard for asylum. And so the administration actually does have a plan for how to deal with the end of Title 42 and the surge of illegal immigration that will accompany it. And their plan is not to somehow prevent that surge of illegal immigrants coming across the border, but rather to launder their status, to process them, as the administration constantly says, quicker and more efficiently by giving them asylum right away instead of having them wait two, three, four, five years for a decision. And in most cases, they get turned down and just stay and never leave. So they're dealing in a sense sort of with two parts of that asylum problem. They're not going to make people wait a long time, and they're going to give asylum to way, way higher percentage of people than are now getting it by expanding the grounds, arguably beyond what the law allows, certainly beyond what Congress intended. And so I don't think that's going to fool anybody, but their line is going to be, look, these people are all legal. There is no illegal immigration. What are you complaining about? We'll see how that's going to work out because at the end of May or late May is when all of these things will come together and we'll see what happens. But there are hundreds of thousands of people in Mexico waiting for the end of Title 42 so that they can surge across the border and make these bogus asylum claims. I got to say, if there is a silver lining, the silver lining is that it may force us to have a debate about whether our asylum laws can stay the way they are, and they really can't. So it may well lead the Republican Congress next year to do a re-examination the way we do asylum, because asylum is now a 70-plus-year-old institution. It was created in the aftermath of World War II at the beginning of the Cold War. It's outlived its usefulness. The world no longer exists in which this asylum system was created. It was designed for the occasional Russian ballerina. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not that much. It was a handful of people that it applied to. And when it was any problem that's small is easy to ignore. It's not that big a problem. And so even though asylum has always been, in my opinion, structured improperly, it wasn't an urgent concern because if it's 2,000 people a year or something like that, who cares? When we're talking about half a million, a million in a year, we could conceivably see more even, who knows, then it simply isn't sustainable. And it is going to be imperative for us, in my opinion, to withdraw from the UN Refugee Treaty, also withdraw from the Convention Against Torture, which is another anti-borders measure, and reconstruct from the ground up an asylum system that actually is consistent with the national interest instead of what we have now, which is, frankly, uh, little more than a crowbar to try to pry open our borders. And so, like I said, if there's a silver lining to the catastrophic 
border disaster we're going to see at the end of May, it's that it will force Congress to address this issue in a way that it is really chosen not to in any significant way. So that's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. If you're on a platform that allows rating or reviews, please do so. Feel free to just email me directly if you have any comments, criticisms, compliments, what have you, at msk at cis.org. And I hope you will tune in next week. Thanks. Thanks.